Uh, so last year, uh, um, 6.5 million uh, total sales of homes. Uh, 1 million were um, uh, new construction, and then uh, the remainder were resales. And if you look at institutional, uh, total what, what steamed institutional buying was 100,000 uh, homes net purchased. And so when you look at that, it's really one and a half percent of all home sales. And so I think, you know, the conversation is, you know, while you might have, you know, certain neighborhoods or certain markets where, you know, that number may skew higher, overall, it's really only about a percent and a half. And so does the narrative of like, you know, Wall Street buying up Main Street, you know, does that really apply was, was a question. We're gonna get started. So, um, so everybody, listen. Uh, Thad and I are here in Washington D.C. And uh, b- before we get started, the, this, the agenda for today, we want this to be open format, dialogue, conversation. We'd love to hear from many voices. Uh, we do have our notes, which both of us were taking in review. I mean, this just ended hours ago, so uh, we, we've got like, our notes are like <laughs> on pieces of paper over here, and we were just reviewing and getting a little organized before we get started here, but. We want this to be interactive. There's dialogue. There's things you guys could share uh, to really go deeper on some of this stuff or add perspective to what we're going to offer and report back here. So here, here's what we're going to do to get kicked off. Uh, I just want to explain the conference we were at and who was at this conference. It's just a point of context. And then we'll dive right into a little bit of some interesting things that we heard. So uh, again, in Washington, D.C., we were in our purple suits, uh, You know, not just our purple t-shirts and uh, we were with the National Rental Home Council. Um, Second Nature has been an advisory member and a preferred partner of the NRHC for a few years. And uh, the NRHC is really a advocacy group for single family uh, rental and small multifamily uh, rental housing providers. They, uh, you know, a, a lot of the members are frankly, um, you know, people like Invitation Homes, American Homes Rent, a lot of the large housing operators. There's also a number of service providers. Uh, that are a part of this as well, but there are it's open to uh, smaller owner operators, and uh, there are some third-party property managers in addition to that who are are members of the group. Although NARPM would be the primary organization for most people like that. Many of you joining, you're more familiar with NARPM. Um, and so there's about 400 people. I want to say, yep, is that right? Okay, um, so about 400 people in attendance. It was the first uh, in-person event like this for the NRHC. Um, Definitely went great. I would just say, generally speaking, it felt like a great conference. A lot of great yeah. content. Um, you know, some some good networking as well. And uh, although I will say the parties were not as good as <laughs> as other events yeah. that we've been to. Uh, maybe second nature will have to bring that next. I was in bed like by ten thirty a couple nights, so I'm like, maybe we can step up the after hours fun a little bit more. But uh, certainly during business hours, it was very valuable. Um, so Thad, I think we should kick off with a little bit of. We heard from the CEOs of Invitation Homes, Dallas Tanner, uh, Dave Singlin yep. from American Homes for Rent. We had Kevin Baldridge, COO at Tricon American Homes. We had Colleen Keating, who's the CEO at Fursky Homes. And ultimately, she's the, um, uh, I don't know if it's the executive director or president of NRHC. Yeah, I think, I believe she's the chairman right now. So, okay. So, chairperson of the, uh, of the NRHC, Colleen Keating, CEO at Fursky Homes. Uh, and we also had Dana Sprong. He's a, Harvard grad and lacrosse player. I've gotten to know Dale a little bit. Uh, he's he's um, one of the managing partners at Vinebrook Homes, who operates out of the Midwest. And so they're asking some of these CEOs who all manage 10,000 to 80,000 plus homes. 
um, you know, views about what's going on in the market, what's important to pay attention to, what are just some of the narratives around the industry, uh, any critical trends or insights. And uh, I'm going to pull up my notes, but maybe you can start us off, Thad, with what stuck out to you from that session. Yeah, so if I were to cover kind of the high-level narrative, I would say, you know, um, a lot of conversation around, um, you know, headlines and with housing prices rising, um, aggressively, you know, what's some of the focus and kind of the magnifying glass that's been put on the uh, single family rental industry and specifically given a lot of these are institutional uh, investors, you know, what's the, the focus on the institutional, you know, are they net positive or are they net, you know, negative? And so, you know, some of the headlines obviously are promoting the benefits of professionalization, you know, the good quality product that they're bringing to the market. Um, you know, the things they can do through scale that may not be available to, um, you know, an individual landlord. But, you know, on, on the other hand, people may be uh, highlighting, hey, they're buying up a lot of new homes, or they're buying homes in neighborhoods and driving housing prices up. And so a lot of the conversation was around um, kind of that, that narrative, that headline. And, um, you know, what are things that from a PR and communication standpoint that they can do to, to better promote the good things they're doing? And then also tactically, you know, what reflection kind of what, what do they have to look in the mirror and say things we can do better. So that was a lot of the conversation, I would say, um, a big topic for them, you know, and when they say, all right, what are some solves we can do is really looking at, you know, focus on uh, resident experience was it was a big topic, focus on ESG and like, what are the environmental or, you know, social things that that they can be doing. Um, and then, you know, there's a lot of metrics um, that they walk through to really put things in perspective. So you know, one interesting thing I'll, I'll share there is, uh, so last year, uh, um, 6.5 million uh, total sales of homes, uh, 1 million were um, uh, new construction, and then uh, the remainder were resales. And if you look at institutional, uh, total what, what steamed institutional buying was 100,000 uh, homes net purchased. And so when you look at that, it's really one and a half percent of all home sales. And so I think, you know, the conversation is, you know, while you might have you know, certain neighborhoods or certain markets where, you know, that number may skew higher. Overall, it's really only about a percent and a half. And so does the narrative of like, you know, Wall Street buying up Main Street, you know, does that really apply was was a question. Um, and so um, I think that was, you know, uh, some of the conversation um, in terms of res resident experience, you know, if you look at kind of the institutional, they've spent the last 10 years, you know, really just kind of accumulating, getting operations, getting best practices in place. And so they're now saying, hey, how can we kind of turn the focus to really focusing on that rental experience? What, what can we do to make an amazing experience where, you know, the word of mouth, um, the product is so good that it speaks for itself. So anyway, those, those were kind of the, how I'd summarize that, but anything you want to highlight, Andrew? I just want to hit people with some interesting stats that I, I wrote down that maybe go a little bit deeper on, on what you said there. So under supplies uh, is the issue and has been a, a top issue. And I just want to put some context into that of if you look at, you know, like population growth is actually kind of softening, uh, you know, across the United States. And there's maybe some challenges and concerns with that. But really what drives rental demand is household formation, which is of population growth, right? Like what who's aging into or getting to those life events that are going to move them into uh, you know, either wanting to buy a home or move into a single family rental uh, out of whatever type of housing class they are. So it's 1.7 to 1.9 million household formations per year. We got this from people like John Burns and again, some of the CEOs, um, you know, on, on the panel. 
there's only 1 million homes being completions per year. So you've got a 1.7 million in household formation and 1 million completions, right? Uh, and this has been happening over the last few years. That they're calling about a four, four and a half million home deficit. Uh, and it's it's not going to get better uh, over the next year or two uh, dramatically is basically, basically the outlook of that. And so uh, demand for rental looks like it's going to continue to be strong. Some of the larger operators were looking at their uh, some of their demand statistics, three and a half qualified applications per uh, per property, right? So there, there is a lot of demand. It's higher than pre-pandemic uh, demand. So not just, you know, the temporary things of, of pandemic, um, you know, the pandemic factors happening there. Uh, that was a key thing. And then uh, another one was also just like the number of rental households and the opportunity for rentals in general, what did it transition to that? 49 million households that rent in the United States, 125 million people. Um, and, you know, a lot of what the media is talking about is certainly talking about like home buyers, right? And first time home buyers, but um, there's 125 million American Americans, right? That are in families that are, are ultimately renting. Um, and, you know, there's not as much coverage uh, and talk and focus really on them. And so the NRHC is hopefully going to try to bring more attention uh, to that. And, and that's a, a point they're taking away. Andrew, we did get one question uh, from Claire. Well, which net number are you referring to, Claire? And the total number of of increase that you said in 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 um, home formation, I think was the word you yes. used. Is that a net number? There's got to be some that that also lead them. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. So just based on so net, sorry, yes, net household formation, yeah. meaning, you know, people are living longer, I guess, and, uh, and, you know, some of the other things on the other side of those trends um, that would move people out of the housing market. Um, yeah, basically, it's 1.7. You've got this large demographic, specifically of millennials, right, that's just aging into uh, that stage of life where um, they're getting into to home buying, that's driving a lot of the demand, which is driven prices like crazy, continue, you know, Everything that we're seeing on on both sides of the housing market, but uh, for sale and for rent, um, that's a lot of what's driving it. Is that just tremendous demand outpacing supply uh, in household formation versus building completion um, of housing units? So a million being completed per year, one point seven to one point nine in formation, um, which hopefully is a stat you can take to some of your investors and property owners of just talking about here's the outlook, uh, you know, in the years ahead and what's going on. Um, Let's see, what else do I have here? 90% uh, of homes have multiple occupants in SFR. Originally, we'd seen that number be 82. Uh, and so that number has ticked up a little bit over time. So 90% uh, of homes, at least first key homes in their portfolio, have multiple occupants. And then also putting some of this rent growth in context of, um, you know, thinking about things from a triple win lens, so to speak here of like rent growth is is one way to look at it right and and if you're the resident right uh that's a cost increase <laughs> you know that's not so as positive a thing right uh from their standpoint and from where they sit and you know starting to position these things it got us thinking about you know, even renewal offers and putting some of these things in context for residents over time you know i'm just thinking about communicating to a resident hey with what has happened um in the mortgage to rent uh you know kind of ratio there was a there was a twenty percent difference there, you know. If you look back a few months ago, uh, between that and, and for if you look today with where mortgage rates are, where price appreciation, everything else has gone, that's expanded to close to forty percent. 
and so, you know, when home prices are appreciating 19% year over year, suddenly that 12% rent growth increase or a renewal increase of 8% or something like that, you know, in that kind of context, um, it, it's it's driving more affordability, right? Uh, it's giving more access to family. And I think we are, everyone is expecting to see with mortgage rates going where they are. And it looks like the Fed is just going to continue to increase rates uh, based on what everyone can tell. We're just expecting things to get harder and harder and harder uh, to be accessible to buy a home and move into a home or stay in a home uh, that maybe they could afford and locked. If they didn't get that fixed rate, uh, you know, <laughs> then then it could be more challenging and drive more rental demand there. Andrew, one thing I was going to follow up on, and you know, we heard we heard a lot of conversation around this. You know, let's say you are, you know, you do have some rent increases, and you're in conversation with residents, and that framing that Andrew was just talking about. One interesting thing, if we see rates rise, let's say another two points, I think the 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 rough math is just the you know the roughly two percent increase we've seen in mortgage rates has driven the cost of a mortgage up almost thirty three percent, even though the home prices may not have gone up that much. But you know, rent prices aren't going up thirty three percent. So the relative cost to buy in that monthly payment, you know, if we see uh, rates continue to go up another point two points, you know, you're going to see that rise even more. So we might have seen a scenario where you know home that cost, um, you know, $300,000 might've been a $1,600 monthly payment. Now is a $2,400 monthly payment, but a home that was at price to rent might've gone from 1600 to, you know, 1700 or yeah, some, something in that neighborhood. Right. And so, uh, these are just things as you're, you know, thinking about promoting, up. maybe not the best word, but as you're rolling out potential increases and sharing stuff like that, you know, how, how can you really frame this? And and, it, and you know that is a win to the resident, right? Hey, we're not we're not raising the cost at the same rate that the effective price for a new investor to get in the game would be. You know, you do get some some value for being in already. Um, another thing, jumping into kind of obviously, there's a ton of conversation around interest rates and uh, the economic uh, situation. Um, one stat that was really interesting, I and I didn't know this when they shared it, is if you look at the last six recessions the country's gone through. Uh, minus the uh, uh, financial crisis in 2008. So of the last six, five out of the last six, housing prices uh, did not drop, um, you know, stayed relatively flat or held was was kind of the um, what was shared. And so um, what's interesting there, obviously, 08 was a unique situation that led to that. You know, we don't have the same situation, you know, driving this. And so the belief there was that, you know, based on the history that there's a high probability uh, that housing prices do hold. Um, one other factor uh, that plays into that is in no recession in the past have you had $50 billion of outstanding commitments to, to build and buy uh, single family homes. And, and right now that's uh, the rough industry estimate is there's about 50 billion right now uh, that's sitting there trying to buy new homes. Um, and so we're looking at um, kind of a, almost a, a support level where if you do see um, retail uh, demand drop that the institutions will continue to buy. So, you know, should there be an economic downturn that continues, we go into a full recession. Um, they do believe ho home prices will hold uh, just from, um, you know, past precedent and that the buying will actually content, uh, potentially prop up um, and kind of help there as well. So, um, again, I think, you know, as Andrew highlighted, this is the, uh, you know, if you're doing your quarterly investor calls, um, I think this is, you know, some great information, you know, hearing from people who have, you know, dedicated uh, full teams to, to, to researching and kind of putting this together. So um, while you're looking at that, too, I, I was just going to put a couple of things that from an advocacy standpoint, NRHC is looking at. Um, so a big one is HOAs and just the 
the increasing boldness, I guess we'll call it, of HOAs to have discriminatory practice towards renters. It, it is a, a little uh, unbelievable, you know, to say we live in America and a group of people can point to another group of people and say, we don't want you to live here. Um, <laughs> you know, that, that is, uh, that's something that I think everybody in the room felt, uh, this really shouldn't be this way. And so I, they, they are going to be, uh, passionately advocating for, um, just looking at how we solve this problem with HOAs. And I know many of you, um, encounter the challenges ultimately of working in HOAs and there can be, um, you know, ultimately these kind of issues where suddenly investor, non-owner occupied homes are being allowed and there's a resident in place. I mean, you essentially have a forced eviction uh, taking place. I mean, it's just a bad situation uh, you know, that can be caused and, and ultimately impacting investors' uh, you know, ability to, to rent that asset and make, allow affordability, allow these families uh, access to school zones, more affordable housing, flexibility, et cetera, that housing choice, right, of being able to rent. Um, you know, and, and generally, uh, professional operators want the same things as HOAs, like professionally maintained homes, like well-maintained, taken care of, et cetera. And there are HOA violations, and sometimes residents aren't always taking care of the lawn or things like that as they should. But um, th there's been challenges with ultimately HOA attorneys who are a bit opportunistic, I guess is what we could call it. And what you'd say is a, a couple hundred dollar violation or something like that, more of a nuisance fee. Suddenly, it's turning into a $10,000 type of lawsuit and legal expense. And it, it just becomes really prohibitive and a real disincentive uh, for investors to be able to invest in these type of homes. And so that's something they're focusing on. Matt, I, I saw your, your comment. Yeah, it's pretty, uh, <laughs> very, that seems very self-serving. Um, one, um, you know, another big thing they were talking about was ESG. And obviously, again, this is, you know, they're very much at the macro level here. Uh, so they're, you know, they're really looking into trying to pull data around because the way we operate our homes, you know, driving in you know, energy efficiency through various programs they're doing, you know, how can we aggregate those numbers and say, here's an impact we're having that may be an accident on the landlord. You know, their reality is they're not really doing anything, right? They're just kind of handing the key over. So here's the stuff we're doing that's good for the environment. You know, on the social side, here's stuff we're doing. You know, they're talking about how, you know, a lot of them are deploying and, you know, getting rental reporting, how we're creating new credit scores for people. Um, they're talking about some of the, the buying assistance programs, the financial literacy, uh, literacy. Ooh, can't talk today. But anyway, so a lot of stuff that they're starting to say, hey, here's here's the value we bring. And so I think, you know, we can expect to see more of that. And then build to rent. I know a few of you, um, you know, on, on this call, you know, have done some build to rent stuff. Um, and so that, you know, that's a big piece. I think um, uh, AMH put out, what, 2,200 homes this last year. And uh, so, you know, definitely something it's a big trend. You know, they're typically doing 100, 150 home communities. They're single family homes, obviously, but, um, you know, there's some multi, small multifamily kind of um, strategy to how they manage them, consistent appliances, things like that. So they're really talking about, um, you know, that that's a big thing they're promoting is like, hey, we're actually adding to the housing stock versus, you know, just acquiring. So, um, but I think, uh, yeah. yeah, American Host Run is now the 41, 41st largest home builder uh, in the nation, which is crazy to think about. Uh, they were not even a company, but a decade ago. Um, so yeah. th there are a lot of them focusing more and more on developing land and built to rent. Um, and on that note, one thing um, we were hearing from them is, 
you know, home builders right now obviously have a lot of demand from retail, but just like they're willing to buy homes off the market, you know, if the market softens, they're also ready and waiting that, you know, if you see, um, you know, if home building softens, they feel like they can be a really good partner to the home builders um, and, and, you know, to an extent prop up that industry should you see a slowdown. Um, and the, the big win there that they're promoting is, you know, it takes a while to ramp up home building supply. But then, you know, when it falls down, you know, it's you can't really turn it on and off like a faucet. So, you know, if you see a, a drop in retail, but the rental can, you know, step in and keep them going, you could see a steadier uh, supply of homes and, and better solution to kind of close that gap. Um, I think the, the last thing I had in my notes was there was some conversation around, you know, um, you know, housing supply that, you know, in the event of an actual recession, you know, if you had two to three percent of people said, you know what, I'm going to you know, have my parents move in with me, or I'm going to move in with my parents, you know, or, uh, hey, I'm going to get a roommate, you actually start, you know, you almost significantly close that gap. And so, you know, depending on consumer spending behavior, you know, that could be one, uh, I don't know if you call it a headwind or a tailwind, I guess it depends on your viewpoint, but that could be one thing that that impacts, um, you know, supply demand, and could be a little bit of a curveball, potentially, that's hard to forecast, uh, you know, how consumers will behave, you know, culturally, we're typically very much wanting our own space. So, do you see that change just on the fringes, but can really, really add up? So, I, I think the last thing I had down that's really telling you what you already know because you're experiencing it on a day to day basis is uh, just costs are going up, you know, cost of capital, but also cost of labor and just how difficult it is to find, you know, maintenance and contract labor, uh, you know, construction labor, rehab labor, et cetera, that, that gets quality jobs, jobs done in a timely manner. Um, it's getting increasingly difficult. Those costs are going up in cost of materials and supply chain is still a challenge. You know, I don't know how closely you're paying attention to the news, but, um, you know, recently still in China, there's been some, some shutdowns and like kind of other waves and things like that. And we, we won't really see the full impact of that until, you know, even a few months from now, but, um, there are some things that have improved. Uh, you know, I heard this morning, um, you know, that refrigerators at one point were 33 weeks. Uh, that was the timeline to wait, and those are down to to closer to three weeks. Uh, you know, a couple of years ago it was like one day, you know, or a couple of days. But uh, <laughs> anyway, so garage doors and uh, garage doors, uh, you know, windows. I mean, there's different parts of the supply chain that are, um, you know, going to be interesting to keep an eye on and just see, uh, you know, what what potentially look at, you know, what expectations ultimately to set for people. Um, maybe it's Lumber obviously has normalized a little bit down from its its big peak, but um, but you know, but it's still increased over where it was not not too long ago. So um, the other thing I had down here, Thad, was uh, we were listening to John Hope Bryan in another panel, um, you know, to, and there's just a point of insider uh, uh, something that he said that was interesting, which was um, that SFR it's the only emotional asset in real estate. And he talked about how when he was growing up in Compton, California, where he grew up and for him home, it was, you know, it's like when you guys are at move out, you see like these marks on the door frame, right. Where someone's like measuring the height of their kid. Right. And then you can see like their kids grown four or five, six inches over their stay in the home that you manage. Um, you know, how for him in his neighborhood, that home was dignity, it was respect, it was protection, uh, and how much it just meant to him. And um, there's something really 
purposeful about that, that I think we felt and the whole room felt a lot of inspiration in of the very noble work that you all do to provide this place for people. And of course, the challenge that's wrapped into that of it is so emotional uh, that it just it becomes so difficult, right? When things go wrong. And that's the, that's where it's hitting people. It's hitting people, um, you know, where it, it's very personal, right, to them. It's very emotional uh, for them. And again, this is what you experience on a daily basis, but I just thought that was a interesting insight in the way that he shared it was important. Um, there's some interesting investor activities around like savings programs. Uh, there was one who got on stage that has thousands of homes mentioning a two to one kind of savings match for their residents. And so if the resident saves $50, they will actually match that for $50. Uh, and, and they are an owner operator, right? So they, they're kind of like on both sides of that versus third party and talking about how to fund that. There's, you know, there's questions about how this could be duplicatable, but um, but it was interesting to see how, hey, here's what we did for credit scores over the ten tenant's residency, but here's also what we did for their savings balances, right? Over their time with us. And saving for a down payment, that's not a three-month thing. You know, it's not like, okay, I'm just saving <laughs> for what is some discretionary income for three months. You know, it's, it's typically going to be over a longer time period, helping to match, helps people feel more momentum and progress, et cetera, towards that, helping them get where they want to go. But it's still going to take, you know, a pretty meaningful period of time. Uh, and then finally, just that, not just the savings, but also reducing their debt, you know, and getting inside some of the financial literacy in the programs, they're really getting involved in the holistic financial lives of their residents and delivering programs uh, and offering support to get involved there. And it, it's pretty neat, actually, what a few of them are doing, uh, ultimately, for the holistic financial position of the residents, which, of course, drives a little bit of this triple win of, hey, when, you know, when you're helping residents get into that kind of financial position, of course, uh, that's more endearing to you. More, those people are more likely to take care of the home and take care of the relationship that they're in. But, you know, further, just their ability to pay rent. And when inevitably life happens and something comes up, right, they're in a much better position to be able to weather and take that um, and, and be able to, you know, pay the rent in those kind of places when that happens. And so, um, you know, maybe that's something that we'll see start to get uh, you know, duplicatable, scalable, and um, in, in ways even um, vendors might come in to help support some of these things uh, to do that for other providers, I thought was pretty interesting. Anything else, Thad, before we get into resident experience and a couple of your panels and some of that? No, I think, I mean, I think that's a pretty good, um, you know, summary, I would say. Yeah, I think, I think you hit, I think you have most points there, so. <laughs> cool. Um, yeah, so talking about resident experience, it was uh, those words, resident experience, it started from the very first opening CEO panel. It was mentioned and discussed for maybe eight minutes out of the 60. Uh, and then, you know, I mean, multiple panels all throughout. And then there were actually a couple panels. So NRHC actually asked Thad to be featured on a panel with um, the Chief Commercial Officer of Progress Residential uh, and a couple of other uh, providers in the space uh, who, you know, are, are doing some pretty innovative things as it relates to resident experience and, and have some thoughts on that. I'll really, I can share my notes listening in. I did catch some things. Even fast still teaching me things from stage, you'd think as often as we hang out, uh, I wouldn't hear too much new, but uh, there was some good stuff that he shared as well as the other panelists. Um, but I think he'll, I'll have him talk more about that. You also moderated a PropTech panel uh, and resident experience was uh, a big part of that. Um, so that moment you kicked off from your highlights and maybe the, the Cliff Notes version, what people could take away. Yeah, so I think from the technology standpoint, um, 
you know, and obviously this, you know, from the lens of kind of the institutional player, there's a lot of conversation around so much of this, this um, industry was built by financial oriented people. So a lot of talk about assets, yields, you know, a lot of financial metrics that they've got down cold, but not so much around technology, resident experience, and, you know, um, some of the operational things that, that f- focus on that. So I think what you're seeing, you know, if you look at like a company like Progress, um, you know, or some of you might know them as Pretium, they've hired, um, you know, former CMO of Home Depot is now their CEO. They've hired executives from AT&T and McDonald's. And so they're, you're really starting to see this transition where it went from financial oriented, you know, maybe operational oriented to an extent, like how do we make the numbers work to, all right, we've solved that, you know, always work to do, but how do we actually design and, and, um, kind of develop an experience that uh, sets this this product um, you know apart from an accidental landlord. And so I think you see a lot of focus coming there. So the talk in technology, um, I think you know a lot of legacy systems, you know, some challenging integration. And so, you know, saying, hey, how can we get together in a coalition and really say, um, you know, maybe create a data layer to uh, better transact, work between systems, processes, vendors. So a lot of interesting um a uh, conversation around that and a big focus on, you know, using technology to better um, improve things. And then I'd say on the, the experience side, um, you know, part of it was, hey, what's the action we can take? So I think, you know, talking about like uh, uh, resident credit and the financial situation, I think there's a stat of 25% of, um, of homes right now have the credit reported to the bureaus. Um, so 75% of renters you know, which their biggest expense is not even factored into their financial score. So, you know, by doing that, can you actually get people into the financial system, actually create a credit score for the first time? And so they can start to get loans and participate. And I think, I, you know, actually, this is back to uh, John Hope Bryant saying, um, yeah, I can't remember the exact stat he shared, but there's something in the trillions of dollars of lost GDP growth that we have with people who just do not participate. You know, if they could get in, start to loan, start to buy, that growth lifts all boats, but you know they're just kind of on the sidelines, and so um, you know I think a big focus there. Um, talking about a lot of customization, personalization. You know, so how can you customize you know the resident experience? Um, you know, allow people to you know whether maybe furniture rental or like you know lawns things like that um, that are coming in line. And um, you know something we we definitely talked about was you know services are time well. Uh, saved, but experiences are time well spent. So, you know, a lot of talk around, hey, we did this operational thing. It's creating a better experience. And in effect, it is, but it's not the operational convenience that creates a better experience. It's that time that they have, you know, to live in the home, do other things that that creates those experiences. But on the flip side, um, you know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, if you have a bad experience, that's time not well spent. Um, right. And so, you know, things like HVAC failures or, you know, if you're cheap on the turns, right. Um, you know, if a door lock's not working, you go, ah, let's save the money. But then that's a phone call, right? And then how does that impact the team? So um, they're, they're really saying, hey, how do we take the long view um, and really kind of invest in our properties, invest in our processes, try and really be proactive, get ahead of things. And then ultimately, um, you know, so that's, I'd say that's half of it. And the other half is how can we bring new services, new experiences, new value to the industry? Uh, it was kind of the conversation. So a lot of people, you know, again, big, big uh, conversation. Um, and a lot of people are, are, I'd say, very bullish and excited about the industry and, uh, you know, think there's a lot of opportunity. So definitely was, uh, you know, learned a lot there and, uh, you know, thought it was a, 
you know, encouraging uh, to, to see the kind of the focus uh, shifting there. So, yeah. Um, you know, I, I think uh, it's amazing how much in conversations like the word assets is used, the asset, the asset, the asset, the, you know, and how little the word customer, you know, was used. And it was just a comment of like that said, hey, for a while, for a lot of the industry, the focus is how do we make this financially viable? Um, and there's still work being done, as you as you mentioned there, but just a lot more of this focus going from transaction to relationships and people and emotionally connecting with customers. How do we drive a great long-term minded experience for people that's going to build a reputation? Our resident experience is our reputation as an industry, right? Is, is how it was characterized. And um, it's so funny how like oftentimes the, it was talked about how like property management software, when people say property management software, property management software, property management software, what are they talking about? Well, usually what they're talking about is Yardi or RealPage or Appfolio, or really it's the accounting, the ERP, the inter, you know, enterprise resource planning, these accounting systems where again, that they're designed around how do we, uh, facilitate transactions right between parties in real estate and organize that, report that, uh, et cetera, right? And so a lot of work has been done there, and that has opened up all kinds of efficiencies and possibilities. Um, I don't think we should uh, understate, you know, the contribution right that those systems have had and what they've enabled. Um, but is that the lens, that financial and transaction lens? Is that the lens that really is going to measure the things, report the things, enable the things that are going to drive? a tremendous experience and help professionals ultimately build the kind of winning experiences that are going to, uh, people will pay and stay for, you know? And I think there was, there was a very candid discussion, actually very uh, <laughs> publicly from folks of, hey, they've talked to Mr. Yardy, like they've talked to Anand, et cetera. And, uh, you know, it, there's, there's a lot of focus on multifamily and the enterprise and a lot of these solutions and, um, you know, unless something pretty dramatic changes, you know, it's, it's, it's not looking like, um, you know, that kind of massive shift, it's going to be hard to make, uh, you know, for and so people are looking for solutions and ways to, to create these kind of experiences outside of those platforms, which was, which was interesting. Um, you know, the, the other thing I thought was, uh, was fascinating, a lot of focus and, and we know many of you on this call, like you're fans of lead simple and some of these other different it's just a lot of people are focused on workflow automation, the ability for technology to really drive efficiency throughout the process, uh, but not take people out of the process and allow people uh, to be able to engage more privately, almost go on offense more uh, than just defense from an experiential standpoint, a service standpoint, um, by driving a lot of those efficiencies through technology. And um, maybe you have something from the prop tech panel of something from one of your panelists or Something that was shared there, Thad, that would be interesting to share with the group. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I mean, a, a big conversation there was just, yeah, I think a lot of the lack of API integrations and the lack of consistency in data. So I think there's conversations around how can we create a standard data format for single family homes, you know, that everyone kind of subscribes to, similar to gap accounting, or, you know, like I think you guys have seen the NARPA accounting standards. Can you do that for property data at a house? That allows uh, you know these dozens of softwares that are addressing different portions of the market uh, to come together. So I think you know a lot of this stuff won't happen quickly, but I think you're going to start to see some committees and stuff form that um, you know 
fast forward three to four years, you might get these standards. Everybody, you know, agrees to them, and then we'll allow even further automation and efficiency there. Um, yeah, I think you're seeing some cool stuff. Um, there's a company, uh, Task Easy, that was on the panel, um, and you know, they've now, when they're deploying their their lawn service, they've now got a satellite imagery that they can validate if the job was done, right? And it's not as good as being in person and, uh, you know, putting your own eyes on it, but for, uh, you know, the cost of rolling a truck to uh, go inspect is, is obviously uh, much higher. So some some pretty cool uh, stuff in some pretty um, unexpected areas like, you know, lawn service obviously is not the most exciting business, but now you got uh, satellite imagery coming in and uh, creating some, um, you know, some efficiency and kind of just, you know, scanning portfolios. Hey, if we spot any issues, could we recommend uh, to go do something? And so, um, you know, and then I think, um, you know, there's some conversation. We had some of the, the smart uh, tech folks on the panel, uh, smart locks, smart home stuff, not smart. <laughs> so, you know, the question there was around, you know, how do you do the balance of we want to deploy smart home technology? But what happens if, you know, it uh, it ages or becomes obsolescent? And so some of the folks there are looking at how do we create, again, an open standard for a smart home where we can use any of the products, but, um, you know, in the event that you have, you know, a thermostat that's 10 years old, you know, how can you make sure it's still compliant and, and works appropriately? So, you know, I think you see companies like SmartRent, you know, who are addressing this saying, hey, we're going to have a dashboard that integrates with everything. And that's your, one, you know, your one place to go. And you also have, you know, folks like Rentley addressing that saying, hey, we're going to build the hardware and the firmware, we can update it live. And so definitely some interesting stuff where I'd say like, you know, smart home, you know, for your own home, you know, that investment might make sense to, you know, you can get whatever you want, but we have a portfolio of 500 homes. If you had 30 different systems, it's too hard to manage. So you see people at the enterprise level, I think purpose building for single family. Um, and it's really, uh, you know, some cool stuff coming, coming online. And I'm sure a lot of you you know, work with one of those companies. So, or I know a lot of you. So anyways, that's, um, that's, uh, yeah, I think that was it from the uh, tech panel to kind of relevant points, but yeah. And I think we've seen smart tech. I mean, just even, uh, Ken, the, uh, CEO at TaskEasy was, was pretty, you know, candid about, uh, like a hundred million dollars has been put into trying to solve, solve that problem. We look some others that are, are similar to it and just how hard it is Yeah, the last 10 years to get, technology right but also service right when the two are still you know happening together yeah at the same and i think a lot of us have seen you know a lot of people try to come into the property management space and say we're just going to technology everything away uh right in this business and how successful that would be and i think we've seen a lot of people really struggle with that um but some people who have gone really focused i think what you've seen is they've been through a lot of challenges over the last year but the 10 years ahead it looks pretty optimistic for um, technology to start to turn the corner on some pieces, you know, of this and ultimately uh, parts of this to start to drive efficiency, which is critical because again, cost of labor, cost of supplies, all these things are going up, right? So having a deflationary force of technology coming in is, you know, hopefully going to drive a lot of value and again, help differentiate professional property managers who don't necessarily need to fear these tools. They, they you know, embracing these things, keeping an eye on them. Some of them are still early, uh, and probably not, you know, maybe not mature yet to take the whole portfolio bet. But as they do mature, uh, you know, being quick to adopt those things in a master list. I mean, a, an individual investor is not going to, uh, you know, really learn how to be a master of all these tools and pulling them together to build a great experience, right? Um, and so, rather than fearing these things, I think uh, 
the the even the people with all the resources in the world. I mean, we're talking about these are ten figure companies, right? That own and operate real estate. Um, and they could resource technology. They could do a lot of these things, but they're very apt to work with you know folks outsource who can do pieces of certain things. And really, what they're looking at is how do we bring this together to a coherent resident experience, a holistic resident experience. Um, you know, that we drive and there's things we'll do, there's things we'll outsource, but pulling that all together, we can stack all these incremental wins and help really differentiate on resident experience because that is who is paying rent. That is, that is the asset, right? It's the person uh, and focusing on people has been a key. So that we got yeah. some questions in the chat, yeah, some comments, should we? Yeah, and I, say, and, and I guess before we jump to those, I think the last, you know, comment I'd have maybe um, is, you know, my, myself, I kind of left feeling inspired and excited about the space. I think there's, you know, there's commitment from, you know, both dollars and, you know, from, from people that, hey, we're going to really make the single family asset class attractive. You know, there's going to be a, you know, a broad, um, you know, from a PR standpoint of positioning, a lot of effort to go in. And, you know, so I think that question of, you know, how, how do you make the, the rental experience you know, so good that it drives more adoption and professional management. Something that we passionately believe is that professional experience is 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 worth paying for, and it's actually a higher ROI. And so, I just you know, overall, I think you know the, the tailwinds are all uh, kind of building, and and we're continuing to move that direction. So, definitely inspired, excited to continue to work on with amazing people and and uh, on products and services that help. So. In terms of questions, yeah, I saw some yeah. concern about- uh, Let's do let's this. Uh, yeah, yeah, I want to start from the top. I yeah. think, Jim Smith, I'm going all the way back to yours, and then we'll come down from there. Uh, this is a quick one, practical one. Is there a ceiling on the maps? This is back when we were talking about if a resident saves $50, you know, the, the investor puts in 50 I, I do believe there was a ceiling yeah. uh, on that. And so not just totally unlimited. If you put in 1000 we'll match 1000 um, But I, I believe it was, it was something similar to that yeah. $50 match. Match fifty dollars. Yeah. That, that was right. It was a specific program, yeah. and I think you could use it for anything. But you just, you know, as long as you're staying in the home. That's right. Uh, and I do believe they had to. It wasn't something like, hey, you can do this for three months and then move out. Uh, you know, it, it, there there was a. This is done. It, it, the program actually. I one thing I remember. And I hope I'm representing this right, but I, I do think this is right. That it it, it wasn't just like any month. If you save fifty dollars, we we'll match fifty dollars. It was if you save fifty dollars twelve months in a row. Right. Uh, then, hey, that, you know, what would that be? $600? Yeah. So you save $600, we'll match that $600. And really, what they want to do is incentivize the habit of saving, right? Not just events of saving sporadically, right? How do we, the habit of saving, yep. right? Being able to pay rent, but also save a little bit on top of that um, was really what they were incentivizing, Jim. And so that, that's a, a good follow up question for those specifics. On the next one, I think, Claire, your comment around, you know, home price increases and investor cap rates. So there's actually a conversation here with a couple of the, the folks on the institutional side, plus the uh, CEO of um, Roofstock. And they were talking about how, you know, they've seen a big shift in the mentality from underwriting purely on yield and, you know, cash flow to saying, you know, an appreciation was just a nice to have. And you're seeing people rethink the formula and talking about, okay, can I just break even? Um, and, you know, cover my costs and then appreciation, you know, is the benefit. So, you know, there's definitely, uh, you know, so, some, um, some pressures there, but I think you're seeing people still find attractive opportunities, you know, and, and um, you know, it's really a different underwriting to an extent 
Um, you know, hey, is this property going to appreciate? That might be one, you know, I'm acquiring where before, hey, I don't care if it appreciates. It actually, you know, it's really about the yield. So I think you might see a shift into the, the markets they're focused on, um, you know, from that regard. And I, you also, there's a lot of conversation about affordable housing. So, you know, if you look at, you know, and, and you all know this, of course, but, you know, a house that's at 100K price point might rent for $1,000. A house that's at a million dollar price point is not going to rent for 10000 It might rent for 6000 And so, you know, do you, do you start to really focus on a different asset class where you can get those kind of returns? And, you know, what's the kind of work you can do, um, you know, to improve those? And so I think, you know, well, you know, again, while, while uh, maybe some of the easy pickings are going away, you know, there's, there's still definitely a strategy. And, and I think, you know, as you think about those investor calls, um, you know, definitely some stuff where you can say, hey, you know, why don't we look at different asset types um, in terms of quality, um, you know, or, or price point. And, um, you know, there's still some opportunity out there. Cool. Any other questions or comments, feel free to drop them in the chat. Um, we are seeing a lot of people saying experience is where they are going to differentiate. Um, I will add that there were some third-party property managers who, um, you know, that we were talking to there, just in general, conversation, a few of them on panels as well. And as investors talk about cap rates, and I don't think you'd see this much in the retail investor or person who owns one, two, three, four homes, but, you know, for folks who own maybe dozens of homes, et cetera, sophisticated investors, um, maybe some of you even have clients that have 50 homes or 100 homes more. Um, you know, the, the, the cap rate pressure and everything, right. Obviously challenging for them. And hopefully they're taking a long-term mindset of there may be a period of time here where there's some pressure there. There's going to be rent growth coming up, but they, they may feel some of that pressure, uh, in the short term, but long-term it's looking very good again, uh, for everybody who's in that side of the business, uh, they're feeling good about it. So hopefully those investors are taking a long-term view versus a short-term view on that. Um, and, and we are seeing some management companies for that class of investors get a little creative. Um, when they are adding ancillary programs, you know, whether it's resident benefit packages or other things that are creating ancillary profit streams, uh, some of them are sharing those, directly structuring their management where they're sharing a percentage of that actually with the investor, uh, which is interesting. In other cases, they've actually negotiated different management fees. Like maybe they've gotten a little more competitive on the management fee, help take some of the cap rate pressure off for some of those who are really feeling it. But uh, they're taking all of the ancillary fees, you know, to their property management company. And, and they're thinking again, just how, how do we build the model, the business model here so that it's a, it's a triple win experience for residents, investors, uh, and the management team. And it's not just somebody taking a big sacrifice in order to, um, you know, alleviate pain for somebody else and moving all the pain somewhere else. How can we solve some of these problems? Well, Awesome. Listen, this was great. We can definitely give everyone a few minutes back of their Triple Wednesday. If we have any questions, we'll take them. If not, um, you know, we'd love to hear your top takeaways, what, what you're taking away from what we shared so far today. We'd love to see that in the chat. Sam, thanks for the question. Any expectation on additional evictions with inflation going on? Ted, what did we hear about that? Hmm. While you actually take some time to remember, I'll just go off the cuff, what comes off off the cuff, Sam. You know, I think a lot of these larger companies, um, you know, they comment out how the CDC had their eviction moratorium at a certain point, and many of them actually put in their own non-eviction policy, uh, you know, predating that CDC eviction moratorium. And so I think a lot of them have really focused on, and many of you have made these same comments to us in our conversations directly of like, that eviction moratorium and not having that lever to pull 
force, force a lot of people to communicate with residents, create payment plans with residents and do other things and, and see there sometimes are other ways and sometimes it can be painful in the short term or a period of time, you know, but spreading out uh, a missing month of rent over uh, months of rent. If somebody goes jobless or in a financial event like that happens and they don't have the savings ready for that kind of thing, you know, potentially working with those residents over a period of time. Um, that's not easy to do for every investor. Not a lot of the investors have the savings, et cetera, to weather those kind of things or see that pay out. But but we are seeing, um, you know, folks who are decently capitalized have a lot of, you know, kind of um, flexible programs ultimately for these residents. Um, you know, something that was interesting that came out was even just straight forgiveness. I think it was $150 million of rent forgiveness from the people just at this conference was given out during the pandemic. And there's not a lot of headlines about that. Uh, making it out into the media narratives. Uh, I'm not sure how sustainable that is or necessarily for everyone that's the right situation, but um, you know, I, I didn't hear much as far as just like what people are expecting of mass evictions or foreclosures or what else. Yeah, no, I mean, I would say there was, there was some conversation around, um, you know, around, you know, if we go into a recession, and um you know people lose income it was really around do we see a demand and application drop right now it's like every property getting filled immediately multiple applications do you see that soften some but there really wasn't conversation that i recall around evictions so and i think sam a lot of the people here i mean if you look at the profile of invitation homes their average household it's a hundred forty thousand dollar income which I, I think is pretty different than your portfolio based on comments you've made in the past, you know, um, progress residential, I think is a little over a hundred thousand dollars, you know, household income. And so there's a, there's a, a, you know, a lot of class, a single family rental, a lot of class B single family rental, um, you know, here and who's affected by that. Maybe, maybe a little bit different. Yeah. I was going to say one cool thing, if, if you have anyone that's doing more affordable or the lower price homes, Oh yeah. One thing good. we heard from a, um, there's a group that that's what they focus on. And they actually said, you know, obviously they don't have, you know, the same rent collection rates and certain things um, that uh, some of the groups that have the 300K and up, you know, properties do, but um, they actually have a program where if you pay your rent on time, get your credit score up, you know, there's a, there's a couple, very simple, but a couple bullet points, like pay your rent on time, you know, grow your credit score that they, you can actually earn a discount on the rent. And so they've really seen, you know, they're looking at, you know, in, in, you know, those lower price points where you might more have more activity, less rent collection. How do we actually drive that behavior up, you know, reward the people who do a good job, you know, and then does the overall lift from everybody trying to do their best actually offset some of the expense for those who achieve it. And so um, didn't really get great metrics, but I think, you know, an interesting thought experiment, if you're starting to recommend, you know, maybe those lower price points uh, to investors as they're trying to grow during this period, you know, things you can do to offset some of the extra challenges. Uh, that typically are the extra ex, um, expense that comes with it. So, yeah, I don't think yeah, I mean, and a lot of people were talking about, hey, if we've got, you know, rent increases and re-rent increases into the double digits, you know, like how long can that really go? Uh, you know, it's like maybe there's a couple more quarters of that, a few more quarters of that, a year or two of that. But, you know, eventually you're going to hit, you've got supply, you've got demand, but that third rail is affordability, right? And so keeping an eye on um, what does the income to rent ratio look like for your 
tenant profiles and ultimately who you're working with, um, you know, is something a lot of people are keeping an eye on. And, and a lot of the operators, they, you know, a three to one uh, type of ratio is typically where they are. And so there's been room and there still will be a little more room. But if you're if you're closer to the two and a half, you know, or the lower end of three, some people are even seeing as high as a four to one ratio in their portfolios. You know, that's, um, you know, the, the, the higher that ratio, maybe the more room there is. Yeah, the roommate, yes, yeah. other people can start. That's right, co-living. We'll see some ways that people solve for that. So we have uh, Atticus, who's the co-founder and CEO of PadSplit, which has taken a unique kind of co-living model uh, to, you know, and they're creating some really interesting yield results for their investors by, you know, renting out a per room basis out of the homes, you know, so you take a four bedroom house and it gets split up across multiple residents and they've got a unique kind of platform for managing it. Some of these things like building residents credit scores, et cetera, they're, do they're doing for this segment of affordable renters. Pretty interesting, different business model and they've scaled it to a few thousand homes now uh, in multiple markets. And so we're gonna bring Atticus on and ask him some questions. We'd love to have you all on that. What's the date for that? I know it's in June, June 8th. Great, which I think is actually the day that our $10,000 cash contest ends. And uh, listen, we'd love to hear your feedback. Feel free to you know, message us offline what you learned today. We'd love to hear that. Keep stacking your triple wins. Take care, everybody. That's all for today's Triple Win Property Management Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for sharing a piece of your life with us. We do not take it for granted. I also want to give a shout out to Carol Housel for everything she and our team does to make these possible. It's crazy to think about over 5,000 professional property managers have pressed play on episodes in season one and season two now. And we really wanna encourage you to keep giving feedback because more and more people are listening. It's getting better and better and better thanks to everything that you're sharing with us. If you like this enough to listen, wanna encourage you to share it with other people. Um, you can give us feedback directly on those social media channels, Facebook, LinkedIn, wherever you're hanging out. You can also send us an email at triplewin at secondnature.com. And we just want to give more. We're, we're, there's no sales pitch here. Just want to offer more resources that help you find and stack your next triple win and become a triple win driven property manager. So where can you find that? You can find the private Facebook group. You can find our blog. You can find our newsletter. You can find more resources all at rbp.secondnature.com. Just search for what you're looking for there. And every time we see you, we want to see a better version of you and your business to that end. Keep it going, feel inspired, take our encouragement, and we'll see you next time.